0: Hey, welcome back to the Crossing Men podcast. This is Bill Search, your host, and we're talking about one of the rubber hits the road topics of the day, temptation. You know, it reminds me of a photo a friend of mine recently emailed me. He's living on the edge of the Yellowstone National Park, beautiful, beautiful part of the world, and he has a quite an eye for photography and uh, often will snap pictures of buffalo in the snow or American bald eagles and flight, really terrific pictures. And recently he sent me a picture of this grizzly bear on this lake shore and there's a snow all around the bear and the bear is standing upon his dinner. He has obviously taken some unfortunate animal's life and he's about to uh, chew up uh, the remains of the thing. And about, Oh, 10, 15 feet away is this coyote also standing in the snow, jealously eyeing it's an animal underneath the bear. And the bear is aiming his snout right at the coyote. And it is the fiercest, ugliest growl I have ever seen come out of a grizzly bear. And my friend sent me the picture and the label of the picture. The title of the picture is Stupid Coyote. And that's really an app title. <laughs> I, bet, uh, I bet all my money on the bear, no matter how tempted that coyote is, by the buffet 15 feet away, the bear is going to be victorious. And that's the nature of temptation. It really doesn't matter how sensible the reality is in front of us. We all face temptation. And it doesn't matter how uh, logical we might be. Temptation comes into our life. And so today we're gonna talk about this. We're gonna talk about how to avoid failure when it comes to temptation. And once again, I'm joined by my friends Brett Williams and Michael Foster. Guys, uh, glad to have you back. And I'd like to just start out with a softball question on this topic of temptation. It's going to be really personal, but it's going to be really fun. When you, were, when you were 10, 10 years old, what stirred temptation in your heart? What were you tempted to do that at 10 years of age you knew, I shouldn't do this?
1: So, Bill, this is a, a great one. Whenever I thought about this, uh, the one temptation that sticks out for me, uh, I was in the fourth grade and I got caught cheating on a science test. You know, I was never a great uh, test taker. Uh, The teacher gave us a few minutes to study before. So I figured out a way that I could put the study guide in a way that I could see it during the test. And about midway through the test, the teacher comes over, taps me on the shoulder and asked me what I was doing. I fessed up immediately to it, told her I was cheating on the test. And of course, back then, they still did corporal punishment. So you guessed it, I was in the principal's office. I got four swats for that.
2: I just remember um, really wanting to be liked as a kid and um, that I would use whatever information I could to gain the approval and the um, the, admiration of anybody that was around me so i used whatever information i had on another person to to seem cool and so i was so tempted always and i still am to to have knowledge about somebody else to use it to to gain a friendship or an inside track with someone who i thought uh, i wanted to be friends with or someone who i admired or thought was was really cool, so I use information and it was such a temptation for me a lot and it still is um, which is funny that I'm no longer ten and I still I'm dealing with the same temptations, but it's something that that I remember as a kid always really being tempted to share that secret or that information to somebody else
0: isn't that funny some of the things that uh, tripped us up as kids still show up and some of the things that tripped us up as kids we look back and go, oh man, oh to be ten years old again oh to oh to Oh, to be tempted to cheat on a little math test. Well, we're in this whole series called The Rubber Hits the Road, and over the last few weeks, we have started out exploring one of the most practical books in the entirety of the Bible, five chapters. It's the letter written by James. And I call it Rubber Hits the Road because there's pretty much nothing but rubber hits the road topics within the letter of James. We started out talking about trials. Last time together, we talked about wisdom. And today we could call this one trials gone wild or trials gone bad because this is temptation. This is when a trial moves from just that thing that could build us up to full bore, full blown temptation. And so I encourage you, if you have an ability to open up the Bible as you're listening to this, turn to James 1 towards the end of the Bible. And we read this in the first uh, verse 12 of uh, James 1. James says this blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And it it feels like it could really belong in a part of the gospels we know as the Beatitudes within the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you're familiar with the Beatitudes, they all start out with blessed are the poor in spirit or blessed are the are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And here is blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. And what James says is that person who perseveres under the trials, will they get a crown of life. And one of the scholars of the last century, William Barclay, he was an expert on New Testament languages. Barclay, he says that that crown that James writes about would convey a, a picture, a snapshot, if you will, to the people reading his letter And there were different ideas of crowns. There were like celebration crowns that were made out of flowers. People would put flowers in their hair and and wear it around like like a crown at a wedding or at a party. So it was a celebration crown. There were royal crowns worn by those in authority like princes and kings and governors and such. And then there was the laurel leaf crown. This was worn by the victors of games. So a winner would wear that type of crown. And then there was crowns of honor that would just be worn to convey the dignity of an office holder of a person. And what Barclay says is rather than having to figure out which crown of these, this crown of life, this is a, this is really all four of these. You could say it is a a celebration thing. It is a, it is a Royal thing. It is a victor thing. It is an honor dignity thing, but you know, not everyone succeeds when facing a personal challenge. Some people fail and when they fail, They always, or often I should say, almost always turn to blame. They get angry, right? Most people, most of us, when we fail at something, we don't go, I failed. What do we normally do? When we fail, we look around and point fingers at other people. And worst of all, worst of all is when somebody gets ticked at God and blames him when they feel like life has gone off the rails. And James anticipates this. This is why in verse 13, he says, now when tempted, No one should say God's tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, this is really funny, in a sense, because the first few verses of the Bible, we meet Adam, first man in the Bible, named and Adam, in those first few lines, when he does something he shouldn't do, he blames God for giving him a flawed woman. He literally says, God, it's your fault. You gave me this woman. He says, it's the woman you gave me. So he's blaming God and he's blaming the woman. Very classy dude, Adam. <laughs> but uh, one of the great modern Bible scholars, Douglas Moo, he says that what transforms a trial into a temptation is our attitude. When we blame God and when we succumb to the, 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 the trial, we're on a very bad path. Guys, why, why are we so tempted to blame other people or blame God for the failures in facing temptations and trials? How, how have you seen this play out in, in your lives or lives of people around you?
2: I think a lot of it has to do with just wanting some control over your life and owning that control. And I think it kind of keeps, it goes back to the garden again of where um, you see both Adam and Eve wanting to control their own things that they're doing and they put themselves in place of God. And so when when we're putting ourselves in the, in the place of God is that we can't be wrong. We can't um, be um, Pulled into this temptation that it's got to be somebody else's fault and it's just a blame shift and when when we don't take ownership of that it can really reap repercussions in our lives that that are just um that are exponential and until we can start to take ownership of those um, we'll never be able to conquer them
1: yeah and so you know i think about this and 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 i'm like well if god is the creator of everything and he knows all of our thoughts and he could intervene any time and direct it the way it's supposed to go. Why do we blame God or other people for our failures? Um, it's just a, a, you know, something I, I struggle with myself as I think through this question.
0: You know, that is true. And, uh, you know, Brett, you're in good company in a sense, that, that thought process. Because the rabbis in Jesus' day, they, they actually, some of them, a bunch of them came to the conclusion that temptation was from God that he was the author of it. And the way they came to that conclusion is they said, Hey, God's the creator of everything. Nothing exists without his intended will and nothing can happen without his sovereign oversight. And that means that if temptation bubbles up, percolates from inside of us, and if we make a bad decision that, that even the inclination to make that bad decision, that internal inclination, that was from God. Now, not all, rabbis taught that but there was a bunch of them that taught that and so that's interesting because i think that that uh, the ancients thought it and then the moderns think it too is that we we view some of those temptations go why would god give me these desires if if he wasn't okay with them if he wasn't the author of them and that that's actually the argument some people use for for uh giving in caving into some of the desires they go hey hey why would god give me this inclination if it wasn't his will you hear people say this And the rabbis, they they also had another idea too. Of course, is that it wasn't just God. They they would say, well, temptation comes from Satan, from the accuser, from the devil. In fact, way back in the '60s, early '70s, there was a comedian. Uh, I've never seen his acts, but I've I've heard the quote from Flip Wilson for years now. Apparently, Flip Wilson had this like side-splitting line that he would employ in his uh, comedy routines, which was, "The devil made me do it," and uh, and it became kind of a, a comedy. Line that made people laugh, and I remember as a little boy hearing people go, "Oh, it, not my fault. The devil made me do it." I think that was my dad's explanation for why he had to have dessert after every dinner. The devil made me do it, and uh, you know, a lot of people they say, "Well, I'm a I'm a good person, or at least I'm neutral. I'm not bad. And if I do something bad, if I do something wrong, it's not because of me. It's because the devil overtook me. I was powerless against him." And James does not let us off the hook. This is why I say James is such a rubber hits the road kind of book because there's just so much practical wisdom in his in his short letter here and this is what James says cuz he's he like it feels like as as you're reading James he's anticipating the yeah but yeah James but here's my version of this and he he anticipates the yeah he says but each person's tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed then after desire has conceived it gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Really happy thought there, James. Thank you. But what James is saying is this is inside us. He uses like this fishing and hunting metaphor in this sentence. It was a visceral metaphor. It's kind of lost on us. We kind of use fishing and hunting metaphors here or the language, but, but really many of us don't. hunt or fish so so the 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 translators they've just tried to give the meaning of what james was getting at but the language he uses it when he says that they're dragged away this was the picture of a fisherman who has dragged away like that perfect lake trout with a hook and the bait on the hook the the trout bites down on the line and at the end of the line there's a hook and you drag away the fish or enticed and this would be that um you know, animals, for the hunter, animals are very smart. They'd rather not be hunted, right? So a modern hunter who hunts deer, they go out in the early part of the fall maybe and they put down a bunch of corn or maybe they put a salt block out and then they constantly keep that restocked so that when hunting season uh, hunting season kicks off, they go out there and they stand by what was the buffet and there's a couple of deer waiting for lunch and, and now the the hunter has some lunch. And that's the language that James is using here. He's using this fishing and hunting language. The only thing is, is we do it to ourselves. It reminds me of a little poem, uh, casual distractions become sinful actions if we stoke the fire of desire. Isn't that good? Uh, I'll say it again. Casual distractions become sinful actions when we stoke the fire of desire. And what James is getting at is we do this to ourselves. The, the, the casual distractions in our heart, we just stoke them. We stoke the fire of desire. So from the inside, we sabotage ourselves. So guys, let me ask you this. Just real practically speaking, how, how would it change a guy's actions if he were to see that trial for what it truly was, which is an opportunity to succeed? Not an opportunity to fail, but an opportunity where he could be a, a strong, tough man of character. How would that change things?
1: So, uh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for me in the span of, you know, three to four years uh, back in, uh, starting in 2014, you know, just real quick, my dad passed away from dementia. We had to move my mother-in-law back from Kansas city to Oklahoma city to be her, you know, sole caregiver. We had no other support from family. I was the sole breadwinner, um, support for my family, uh, lost my job of 16 years. And through it all, you know, it was trying to keep the marriage to stay strong. And in the beginning of the season of those trials, I was so confused what God was trying to show me and do. And I just couldn't understand, you know, why I just felt like every year I was getting kicked and kept getting kicked. And by the end of the season, though, I saw it as more of an opportunity to show God well, Uh, you know, staying strong. Uh, in our marriage and with our our faith and trusting God with the outcome, and I saw that now I have so much more wisdom to share with others to help them through these trials.
2: And that's great. Um, and, and I think about you know with with some of this temptation that we deal with, um, the fact that we're tempted is not something inherently bad it's when you it's when you jump onto that temptation and if we really see um, the temptation as a trap or a snare or a fish hook with with bait on it something that would be really good for us that we ought to just get away from it as fast as possible and if you see it for what it is um, then then you're you're not going to get as close as you want like a like a radiation like if you if you had a radi- radiation leak close to you you're going to flee from that. And if we look at that temptation, instead of saying, oh, I'm going to see how close I can get to it, or I'm going to pick this up and play with it, really seeing that the income, the outcome of, of the temptation, if we fall into it, is that full-blown full, full blown death. And if it is that serious, then we will flee from it. And that's what the Bible tells us to do. And that's the way that we can really um, understand and, and, and see the God transforming us through that is that um, when we're able to, to, to come against these temptations, it's not of us, it's what God's doing inside of us to help us to get away from that temptation. And so when, when we look at getting stronger, the easier it is for us to flee from those um, is one of those things that we really need to be in tune with, the seeing the temptation, number one, that it's not bad that we're tempted, Jesus was tempted, um, that the temptation is dangerous and we need to get away from it as fast as possible
0: you know i i love the practical insight you guys brought both brought to that that there's the attitude that you take into it and then there's the awareness of who you are that you, you know you're you're a human being made in god's image so what what uh, inside we believe that attitude and then also that self-awareness that god comes alongside of us and if we don't have that attitude, if we don't have that awareness, uh, what James, I think, is warning us against is sinking back into our baser human, uh, baser animal kind of nature, if you will. That whole idea of the, the hooking, the hunting, he's basically saying, don't treat yourself like an animal. like you, You're like a thoughtless animal that only responds to bait on a hook or bait in a snare. You're not that. You're far more than that. Don't, con- don't kid yourself. Which it reminds me, there's this uh, incredible old movie. It's one of my favorites. I love old movies. And it's from the 1930s. Frank Capra, who is probably most famous for the Christmas time movie, It's a Wonderful Life. He made a bunch of movies in the 1930s. He made one called uh, You Can't Take It With You. And it featured a very young Jimmy Stewart. It's one of Jimmy Stewart's first roles, as a matter of fact. Very fun to watch him. And during this season where a lot of people are trapped inside, I highly recommend you hunt down a version of it. You can probably rent it. And uh, watch uh, You Can't Take It With You with, uh, with, by Frank Capra. But the, towards the latter part of the movie, there's this uh, moment where one of the heroes of the, of the story is played by Lionel Barrymore, which, again, if you know It's a Wonderful Life, he played Mr. Potter, the evil Mr. Potter and It's a Wonderful Life. But he's a, he's a sweet, sweetheart of a man in this particular movie. And so Lionel Barrymore confronts the protagonist of the story. And the protagonist is this very, very successful businessman who happens to be Jimmy Stewart's father in the film. And this very successful businessman basically is uh, trying to create a monopoly in his business and is driving out some homeowners. And Lionel Barrymore is a holdout who who is standing up strong against him. But the uh, protagonist in the movie, uh, they end up in this all bunch of people end up in this jail cell together, and the the bad guy, if you will, in the movie, he basically says, "Look, you, you got to be an animal. You got to be an animal in the jungle. You got to be like the tiger or the lion in the jungle. Otherwise, you'll be eaten. It's eat or be eaten." And so Barrymore basically said, "You know, we're humans. We're, we're not to be dangerous, undomesticated animals. If if that's who you become, you'll you will have." no friends. You have no one who loves you. And that's kind of when he asks the big question, what's it all worth? You can't take it with you. And so uh, not to spoil the movie, but uh, it is an old movie and it is a Frank Capra movie. And if you know anything about Frank Capra, all his movies ends up happy. And so there's a real change of heart in the villain and there's an internal transformation that takes place. And so hopefully I've convinced you to watch that movie. But, but I think that that's a way for us to kind of close out our time together is to picture that we are far more than animals the world would teach us that that's all we are we're highly highly evolved animals and that we have animal instinct and so we just operate off of animal instinct it's fight or flight we're animals no choice and that's not how a christian man should take hold of responsibility he should see himself for what he is that he is he's a man made in god's image and that we don't Have permission to blame people. We can't blame God. We certainly can't blame Him. And we can't even blame the devil. Instead, what we should do is boldly accept the responsibility we have to face our challenges as an opportunity to mature, to grow up, and be a man, a man of God, who through depending upon God and His friends will stare in the eyes of those challenges and say, I belong body and soul to God. Michael, would you close our time in prayer?
2: Yeah, of course. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the scriptures that teach us. Um, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to recognize the temptations um, that that are near and dear to us. And I pray that you would just help us to realize that those temptations will, um, as we move through them, as you help us through them, will make us stronger. Um, will make us more and more like you. And Father, I pray that that's what you do in our hearts, that you would just continue to soften them, and make them like yours. In your name I pray,
0: amen. Amen. Well, guys, thanks for listening in. On behalf of of, uh, Brett Williams and Michael Foster, this is Bill Search. Thank you for joining us for the Crossings Men podcast. Hope you have a great day. See you next time.